Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Will Miller, a political scientist now employed as an associate vice president with Campus Labs. And joining me today is Brian Smikowski, a political scientist from the University of Idaho. Hey, Brian, good to talk to you today. Good to talk to you too, Will. How you doing? Good. And before we get into it, I just want to remind uh, our listeners that a while back, Jay and Mike had an in-print dialogue on healthcare policy, which was kind of an expanded version of the podcast Health Policy Deep Dive that they did for Patreon supporters. But now, if you're interested in checking it out, it's available to everybody, whether you're a Patreon supporter or not, on our Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash politics guys. And also on there is an interview that I conducted yesterday with Hillary Allen, a student from Oakland University. Um, from up to us, looking at the, the national debt and the bipartisan approaches that we need younger Americans to think about as they think about getting us out of this trillion dollar hole, we can continually dig for ourselves. So just make sure you check those out if you're interested. I just wanted to make sure I brought them up here at the start of the show as well. Brian, this week, obviously, for us, it's a fun week to talk on the politics, guys, because um, the what we all knew was coming has finally happened, and it happened you know, two hours away from me and my my now home state in the arena where my beloved Orlando Magic play, and that is that Donald Trump is officially running for president for his re-election for his second term. I um, mean, obviously, the big tone change we now have is we're no longer making America great again. We are keeping America great. So what are your general thoughts? Um, you know, obviously not surprised that Trump's running, but what do you think about his announcement? What do you think about his chances? What do you think about what's happening there? Oh, uh, gosh, so many things. Yeah, the the obvious takeaway is the transformation from making America great again to keeping America great. And I think what he did was he hit on precisely the kind of topics that his base is expecting him to be hitting on. And this is one of the uh, rare occasions when he's been able to talk about the size of the population of attendees and actually be accurate. You know, he had a, he had a full house, he had an attentive audience, and um, he laid out not so much an agenda for change, but an agenda for continuity. He hit on some of the resounding things of the economy is doing well. Um, he he did speak up a little bit and step up a little bit on uh, the Putin um, the Putin front. Sorry about that, which I think is auspicious timing because as we've been watching events unfold in the Gulf with Iran, we also have Putin's um, telethon that's going on, where it's typically a very scripted environment and a very scripted set of questions and answers and canned responses, but we even had Putin weighing in on the un, the United States' understanding of the um, the, the tanker bombings uh, in the Gulf and then also the shooting down of a drone. And Trump's rhetoric on Russia was a little bit stronger during his, during his launch. He brought up Kavanaugh on the courts. And I think that's an important observation because really it wasn't since Reagan that we were going there basically you know, if you vote, you vote for the courts. If you vote for me, you vote for the justices that you want me to put on the courts uh, and that we agree upon. And I think right now, the portrayal as the Democrats as sore losers, which was a resounding theme throughout it, and even a chance of lock her up. You know, he has a strong base that's very clearly galvanized. And I think right now what he's doing is he's playing upon the Democrats kind of being in, in a state of disarray. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's clearly resonating. I think you're right. right with where he's hitting, and we're talking about the Democratic part. But I mean, if we look at the, the fundraising numbers, again, these haven't been yeah. verified yet, but the idea that Trump brought in $25 million in those first 24 hours after his announcement on Tuesday, and what really makes that number jump out and be impressive is the fact that that is more 
than any of the 2020 Democratic presidential nominees have brought in in their entire first quarter. And it's more than what they brought in in their first 24 hours combined across all 384 or whatever it is up at this point. Um, so there's clearly a message that's resonating. And for Trump, I think they're seeing an intentionality in saying, I can win with my base. Um, yep. Obviously, he told the New York Times, I might not reach out to swing voters. I might say, screw it. Um, my base is strong. They support me. They love me. And I'm going to be able to win just by looking at them, which bucks what political scientists are telling him in terms of his voter base being this dying breed of old white people um, and him kind of doubling down on the people that liked me still like me. I think you're right. Well, I think this notion of it being a dying breed of voters, it's not a dead breed of voters. It's still a category of people that he could tap into, I think, very reliably uh, in the next election cycle. And it makes me think back to 2016, and we were having a lot of conversations, and we were all fielding calls and and, and predicting the elections and, and talking about how narrow the lane and possibility of, of a win for Trump is. And now I find myself in a position of saying how broad his lane and his path to success in 2020 is. And I think you hit the nail right on the head, Will, when you made the comment about his base being clearly identified, clearly understood and they're galvanized. He did, during his launch, make what, what at least appeared to be an appeal to the African-American vote. Uh, but I think what that was was less a chance to say, hey, by the way, I'm really suddenly interested in prison reform, and I'm really interested in the plight of uh, African-Americans in the American justice system. And I'm not calling into question whether he values that or not. That's not the issue. I think what that was was his first everywhere. strategic barb Sometimes. at Joe Biden. Uh, because among all the Democratic candidates who are running out there, Joe Biden has um, a strong likelihood of carrying the African-American vote. And when we look back at the, the data, the demographic data from the last election cycle, 89% of the African-American vote went to Hillary Clinton. Um, before that, Joe Biden was seen for eight years as working closely with a very beloved president and Barack Obama. I don't think that... Trump is really reaching out to a new electoral base. I think he sees it that in an attempt to please everybody, he'll end up pleasing nobody, and he's not going to betray his base. And I, I think right now he's relying on as long as I can get my voters out to vote, and as long as the Democrats are characterized by you know a topic I'll get into in a little more detail in a minute, too many cooks in the kitchen, but nobody's really got the secret sauce. That's that's something that I think he's playing to very cleverly. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a clown car right now. Every time we look, there's another Democrat calling, you know, crawling out of this thing saying, here I am running for president. Give me my 0.8% of the vote and let me go to Miami yeah. and be one of the 40 people on stage. And it's, it's funny because Democrats gave Republicans so much grief during the nomination that led to Trump with there being too many people and the message gets mixed and you're cannibalizing right. each other. And here they are now. I mean, if the Democrats want to win in 2020, make Joe Biden your nominee today, put Michelle Obama on as his VP and start touring the country. Yeah, Keep your mouth shut and focus in instead of killing each other and then sending this weak, wounded, whatever's left of whoever it is out to battle Trump. Yeah, we've seen, we've seen this happen before in elections, too, that if you're sitting in your corner and you're watching your opponents devour themselves and attack themselves, what you're showing is a house in disarray rather than a unified house. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I, I would say strategically that Joe Biden is the top potential vote getter for the Democrats right now. And I won't say anything critical of any of the candidates who are lining up uh, on either side, you know, so far. The point that matters is that 
it, it really is like having too many cooks in the kitchen that the floodgates were opened. And I think there was a moment in time, a very recent moment in time, where everybody stepped into the ring thinking, I could beat this guy. I could do this. Just look at his track record. And if you're looking at it from the left, well, you see is stuff that you hate, Will. If you're looking at it from the liberal left side of the equation, you're looking at everything that Trump, that Trump is doing as fundamentally wrong and problematic. And you see yourself as the potential solution to that. But hell, so, if you're looking at it from the liberal left, you're looking at half the Democrats on the stage and thinking the same thing. Well, that that's true. So what happens is we're going to see a splintering. We're going to see some of the candidates obviously start, you know, fluttering away. But among what's left, I think this is one of the real dilemmas for the Democrats right now, is that while you've got a galvanized base who are at their beck and call for Donald Trump right now, you've got the Democrats basically trying to say, with all these cooks in the kitchen, they're all saying that, you know, I've got the winning recipe. It's like a chili cook-off, right? And they're all going up there, and they've got the best recipe, and they're just trying, trying to tell everybody, this is what the Democratic chili pot looks like, and mine is the best. The thing is, without the special sauce, like, who's got that resonant message that's going to carry that 50% plus one? Who's got the resonant message that's going to tap into the state's where the Democratic Party definitely needs to tap into. And the two candidates who clearly, I think, have the most uh, clearly defined special sauce, it's Bernie Sanders and it's uh, Elizabeth Warren. And both of them are basically campaigning on a platform of economic justice. Right now, with the economy thriving, I would never go so far as to say it's the economy stupid, because it's not. Right, even our understanding of that turned out to be a little bit less informed than we thought it was in, in previous election cycles. But right now, when the, when the economy is generally speaking being productive, it's not faltering, it's not crumbling. The last thing that centrist voters want to hear is a candidate talking about how we're going to fundamentally change our economic system. Right. So two candidates. Things Elizabeth are good. Why are you going to screw them up, Elizabeth? Yep, exactly, exactly. And even though we could look and say from a very academic standpoint, I, I think our system is messed up, man. I mean, I will look at our economic system and say, well, we do need a higher degree of economic justice. We do. I think we can get behind uh, Elizabeth Warren's definition of a wealth tax. Um, but that's something that appeals out at the tails of the distribution of voters. And in that realm, you know, on the left-hand side, you'll find me, but it's a pretty lonely crowd other than that, Will. And so you're not going to have a lot of people, especially as we move towards the middle of the equation, who are waking up every day thinking the economy's not doing too badly, saying, you know, let's go for, for the candidates who've got the most radical ideas with regard to economic justice. And I don't say radical as a criticism, uh, because I believe in you know, radical change and I believe in the arguments that are coming from that side of the continuum. I just don't think it's going to carry voters. I agree. I mean, I think the thing is, there's not, time's up. Um, yeah. The economy's not going to bottom out. It's not going to get to a point where anybody who today is saying they support Trump is going to change their mind between now and 2020. Mm -hmm. I think for me, what the Democrats is, I mean, polling's coming out every day that says, you know, Joe Biden beats Trump in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Yeah, polling the day before the election said Hillary Clinton was going to beat him by double digits in most of those states. Um, yep. So we know that there's still something unique about the Trump voter and their willingness to share this information, yet we still keep relying on polls that tell us Democrats are fine. Trump's polling at 42, 43 percent. Trump has nowhere to go but up um, because, again, the base is there. He's not going to lose people. If anything, he's adding them as we battle through this. But I think about that first debate in Miami 
And the question for me is going to be, what happens when you have 20 Democrats a night for two nights beating up on each other and basically handing Trump's team a playbook for, if you want to gain ground on this person, this is how you do it. And how is the successful nominee going to change from, I have to beat up Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, whoever ends up winning. I'm going to trounce all over little tiny Tim Ryan. Um, after you do that, how do you turn from that into Donald Trump is evil, Donald Trump is bad, must be Donald Trump? The messaging is just so different because we're seeing what I would consider an overtly policy-based debate with the Democrats right now and not enough of what Joe Biden's honestly trying to do, which is, I'm a really nice guy and I want to cure cancer and Donald Trump's kind of mean and we need to be make sure that he's not the president. I think that's the message they need. But they're so full of themselves on these policy places that they're losing that ability to just reach out and tell Americans, we're not telling you we have the perfect solution. We're telling you we're better than him. And right now, that's all you should care. And right now, unfortunately, and we're going to see this in great detail next week, is the white noise that the, the candidates are generating. Because everybody's going to be seeking to stand out. They're going to be using this as their time to distance themselves from the other people on their side of the ideological continuum. And that's, I mean, that's what the process is for, right? Like, if you and I were on the same, in the same political party, each one of us would be trying to convince voters that we're the optimal candidate. But at some level, there's got to be something cohesive that defines what the party's agenda is going to be. And obviously, as we move to the general election is when this really comes uh, into focus with a higher degree of clarity. But I think you're exactly right that what's going to happen is that Trump's going to be able to see 20 different little things that he could pick apart and feed out there and push out there to the media, uh, through the media, to his base to say, oh, you're going to vote for this person? And there'll be some new nicknames. There'll be some new, uh, you know, cute little sayings that summarize where they stand on some of the issues. That'll be used to tear, tear them apart, you know, a little bit further. And Trump is definitely going to be able to campaign beginning next week on a platform of a party in disarray, a party that doesn't even know who it is or what it is, a party that's being defined by too many different voices, too many different people. And why would you run the risk of that when you have 20 different voices trying to say one thing, when I'm the guy who's been president for a couple of years, and hey, look, the economy ain't doing so bad, is it? Right? Yeah, economy's not doing bad. You keep telling me I'm going to start all these wars. We're not at war. There's no immediate threats. There's no imminent dangers. We're closer with North Korea than we have been <laughs> forever. Yeah, whether that's enough or not, who cares? But he's going to be able to point and say, they told you all of these awful things were going to happen four years ago, and you voted for me anyways, and none of them have occurred. Yeah, um, and, and this goes out you know, to a conversation we were having earlier about you know, the, the Teflon Don argument. Uh, for those who are familiar with you know, where my accent's from, uh, the tef Teflon Don had a very uh, organized crime uh, reputation, right? That certain things wouldn't wouldn't stick, uh, and Trump has mastered that in a way that Reagan and also Bill Clinton have, and also maybe have not as successfully. Is that no matter what comes flying at Trump, it doesn't disturb and disrupt his base. Everything that comes is automatically disqualified as fake news, right? So then there's automatically the doubt that kicks into the cycle. But the Teflon shield that he's got has a certain historical foundation, which is when you're experiencing peace and prosperity, the public is very magnanimous. If our economy was tanking and if we were teetering on a brink of war, then things would be very different, 
right now, when we have peace and prosperity and the Democrats largely in disarray, it's easy for Trump to reach out to and maintain and solidify his base, while at the same time, um, not, not seeking to expand it, just locking it down, keeping it in place, and carrying us forward to victory. Because what the Democrats you know, are constantly looking for is the evidence of this terrible thing that when it sees the light of day is going to make the American voters say, we've had enough. That's going to make Nancy Pelosi say, okay, now we need to talk about impeachment. Well, it's going to make, you know, the voters, you know, on, on the Trump side say, oh, my goodness, look at who we really have as president. But right now and for the last two years, none of these things have happened. Everything that's come out hasn't had a substantial impact on his uh, service and tenure as president. It hasn't had an impact on his popularity among his base. And I think we see this now even with the whole Hicks situation is that we're, you know, the Democrats are being portrayed as always looking for yet another smoking gun, but it's not the case that where the smoke is fire. No, and I think Hope Picks is the perfect segue. I mean, one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about this week is what's going on with Hope Picks, obviously, having testified before uh, the House on the obstruction of justice uh, investigation. And even though Hicks and Trump have slowed in their communication, they don't appear to be as close as they were during uh, the early period of his administration. Even Trump takes off on Twitter right after and says the Democrats are beating up Hope Hicks, this all-American symbol, this nice, sweet woman who is strong and smart. And they're picking on her because they're mad at me because the Mueller report didn't deliver the exact results they wanted. And it opens all sorts of doors because, I mean, I think here the Teflon Don argument comes into play again. There are Democrats out there and there are people listening to this podcast right now that thought Hope Hicks was going to walk into that room roll over on Trump and be the first domino to fall, just like they all did around Nixon. And instead, she went in and said, I'm not talking about the White House and you can't make me do it. <laughs> You're um, right. And it's, it's such a media play, but it plays right into what Trump wants so much, because now he's pointing and saying, they're not just picking on me. They're picking on people that I entrusted and people that have left my administration. And they're going to drag everybody in the world up before them until they find something they want which means it's all fake news. And whether that's true or not, it plays. It sure does. And one of my favorite headlines, I think it was from the Daily Beast, was um, referred to Hope Hicks as the person who saw everything and said nothing. And I think that characterizes the uh, the frustration on the Democratic side of the aisle. But, you know, when I was thinking about this segment of the show, I was thinking about sort of the, the tyranny of absolutes here. Is it absolute immunity or is it obstruction of justice? And I think this shows exactly where the partisan lines are being drawn, where the left-leaning side of the equation and the Democrats clearly see this as obstruction of justice. To the right of the continuum, we see the argument from the White House that she has absolute immunity. Now, uh, that's pretty much a made-up term, right? Absolute immunity isn't really a thing. There is sovereign immunity, there's immunity, and there's, there's legal parameters that govern what um, executive officials are permitted to say and what they're not permitted to say. But to basically go in and say, I'm not even going to tell you where my office was located, that took um, a certain amount of backbone uh, to bring, elevate almost to a comedic level. Because remember when this all started, the Democrats thought they had a slam dunk, right? They thought they had a victory and a win here because she complied with the subpoena. They were able to do something that they weren't able to do with Attorney General William Burr or with White House Counsel Don McGahn. They were able to get her to have a conversation, to be in a room, in a place, to answer questions, to honor the subpoena. 
And what happened was that she answered questions that came from the right side of the aisle, but not the left side of the aisle. So we had the public display of somebody testifying and making her look good. And by association, the Trump administration looked good that I went there, I showed up and I, I talked about what I was legally permitted to talk about. But the Democrats being very frustrated, thinking, ah, yet another opportunity to talk to somebody who saw everything and was a part of every conversation and did admit in separate conversations that she had told white lies to have an opportunity to talk to the Democrats and answer some specific questions, but to basically say, nah, not going to do it. Well, we'll make you do it. No, no, you're, you're not really going to make you do it either. Yeah. So now we're at a, a really interesting impasse because, again, it looks like the Democrats thought they had a little bit of a win. They thought they were going to get somebody to roll. They thought they were going to build the momentum. And once again, the portrayal is the Democrats keep going out on quote-unquote witch hunts and then not producing anything. And the thing that I'm curious about, Will, is even if they did, would it matter? Who even cares? If, yeah, I mean, I just want to be like, I want to go to Jerry Nadler and be like, go do something for your district. If you're so worried about poverty and social injustice and wealth divisions, go do something about that instead of spending eight hours getting you to the exact same point you were at the end just to be able to say, well, we tried. It's really getting to a point where, to your question, it doesn't matter. There's nobody waiting for this. People have think, decided whether they think Trump lied, obstructed justice or not. It doesn't matter what levels. they show up with. It matters differently, I think, at two levels. One is for the integrity of the democratic process. I think it's important to be able to have hearings and to have inquiries. Um, and I think in an ideal world that we would not have this portrayal of absolute immunity, that we would have questions, we would have answers, we would have information, and we would have behavior that follows up you know, from there. And I do think that while we could say what we, how we believe that representatives should be spending their time I think it's fair to say that they should be spending their time on this. They should be conducting oversight. They should be conducting investigations. The thing, the other side of this is, the, the second side of this is, even if they said something like, aha, here's your smoking gun, I think right now, it, it wouldn't matter to the voters. To the average voter, like you said, well, they could look and say, oh, yay, you got them. Congratulations. Bravo. Well, let's be honest, though. We know it's not about democracy. Because if it was about democracy, Barr and Hicks would be sharing a jail cell right now. Well, and yeah, Democrats right. sure aren't going to do that because they know what it would do to Trump's numbers if they actually right. enforce this. So if they really believe it's about democracy, you have plenty to say that these two aren't answering questions they could answer. Yep. So think, do something about it. And I think there's also an interesting strategy that's sort of like um, – a subtext that doesn't come out when you read the news or watch the news on a daily basis is, you know, when you have somebody like Nancy Pelosi basically saying, we don't, we shouldn't be doing any more inquiries or investigations unless and until we're ready for impeachment, right? So on the one end, there's people who are frustrated that the Democratic Party is not pushing for impeachment. They're frustrated with Nancy Pelosi for not taking the torch for impeachment forward. But I think that she's being very strategic and very calculated saying, you only get one shot at this, right? It's not three strikes and you're out. You get one chance to step into the batter's box. You got two outs. It's the bottom of the ninth. No person on base. And if you don't hit a home run, the game is over right now, right? And so even the warning on the Democratic side, that is, is that we should put some of these things on hold until we have enough to move forward with an impeachment. And if we don't, 
you know, I, I think the subtext is what she's saying is, is at least in part that the public appetite for a continuous cycle of investigations that don't result in anything at the highest level appear to be failures to the average voters. They're not going to look because we, we could line them up. Well, we could line up all the people who have gone down again. Part of the, the, the Teflon Don analogy was that as the Don, you, you stay, you're, you're the head of uh, the organization. You're not touched, but a lot of people around you do fall. If you look at the number of people who have cycled out of Trump's administration and have gone from the White House into a prison cell, for example, right? The number is not insubstantial, but to the average voter, that's not making a difference. Has the average voter already forgotten about Flynn, for example? I bet they have. Yeah, listen, so moms, the question uh, is, are exactly what right now, kids want Flynn's not running for office. All these other people that have gone down in, um, in the last several months, they're not the ones running for office. The president is. And yes, he might have said he hires only the best people, but you know what? He's he's the one who is still in office and not removed from office. And the good times are rolling. And why disrupt it? That's not what I believe, but I believe that that's the popular public sentiment that right now is positioning Trump as the as the person for whom it's his to lose, rather than the outsider hoping. But to be win. honest, though, would it, that approach? position Democrats better to unseat him than continually appearing to just drag in on an issue that is decided? I think I think so. And I think what the what the Democratic Party really needs to do is figure out what what is their issue, what is their platform gonna be. Um you know to be fair Well that's four years in the making. Yes it is. And um I I find Elizabeth Warren's campaign and uh, economic justice platform to be both plausible, sound and sound. I think that it's well thought out by a very intelligent person, and I believe that she has remarkable leadership abilities, right? So we could put those things in, into, a, into a nutshell. But well, let's say that, one in, thing about that. It yeah. sound bites like complete crap. Oh, there is no good marketing for what Elizabeth Warren wants to do, and that, unfortunately, is a reality of this no, situation. That's, a, that's exactly the reality. So if you're going to be talking to you know people like me where – you know, admittedly, right now I am literally sitting in an ivory tower. Um, it's going to resonate with people like me, right? But is it going to resonate with the average person who feels like, you know, my job is pretty secure, I got a raise, things are kind of all right. Um, I don't want to talk about, you know, it doesn't matter to me to think about the richest, you know, top tier. Um, it doesn't do much for me to think about economic justice when i feel like right now things are maybe not great but they're also uh, not bad could so, be a lot worse yes and so i, I guess the question is what is the theme going to be that's going to marshal the democrats around one particular cause around one banner what's that banner going to be right and you know in this regard i'm going to go back to something you said a few minutes ago well um that goes kind of to the keep hope alive campaign so when Clinton came in and basically co-opted the Jesse Jackson argument. There was something there. There, there was there was a lot about hope. And now, granted, I mean, what what are the odds of being born in a town called Hope and then running for president against an opponent who has been talking about this for generations and of being able to fold that into your campaign? Right. A lot of a lot of magical things happened when Clinton ran for office the first time. But what is that thing going to be here? And this might go back to Joe Biden being a person who says. I've got the big picture. The problem with, you know, we referred to the, the Uncle Joe situation in, the, in our previous broadcast, is that he, he does speak to a certain cross-section of the electorate. 
He does speak to people who are going to say, you know, there's nothing radical about him. He's, he's overall a good guy. He's got a lot of integrity. He's honest. But then every couple of months, he says something stupid or he does something stupid. And, you know, most recently when he was talking about his relationship and his menteeship basically under um, segregationists, I don't think that's going to haunt him for the rest of his political career. But it was the kind of thing that, you know, I, I wish wasn't a part of our history, obviously. And I kind of wish that um, it hadn't made it into the discursive terrain, because now we're even seeing the Democrats devouring one and over uh, over where they stand, you know, on, on race relations uh, in the United States. And it's not just going to be race relations. There's going to be a point in a Democratic debate where people are going to have to ask each other, each other in front of the entire Democratic Party in the world, how do you feel about Joe Biden hugging children in the 1980s? Yep. Which is embarrassing. Yep. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but the idea that Joe Biden was some misguided out to molest the world person doesn't fit. And I'm saying that as a right leaning person. Um, Joe Biden at the time likely had no idea that what he was doing could ever be taken as anything more than just being a caring, handsy guy. Um, and, which is, and again, today that is wrong. We know that, we've learned that. But trying to take him back 30 years, and this is the equivalent of me taking a dog and you know, when it pees on the floor three days before, then all of a sudden decided I was ready to yell at. Well, you know, the thing is, if we go, if we go back to an argument that you made a while ago that to some uh, political scientists, we look at the Trump base as a dying breed. And my, my response was that it's a dying breed, but it's not a dead breed. Joe still speaks to a little bit of that dying breed of, you know, the, the old left Democrats. Joe still speaks to a category of people that remember him staying on a Senate Judiciary Committee at a time where he could have ascended and he could have thrown his hat into the right to president, but he didn't. There are people that can look at his long political career and see somebody who has strategically made some smart decisions and smart moves for a greater good that didn't advance his career nearly as much as it did um, the cause of democracy. So Joe does have a lot of those credentials under his belt. He is the person seen in the memes with, um, you know, with, with Barack Obama as, you know, buddies and getting ice cream and having a sense of humor and, and at some level made us think that's what civility is. That's what friendship is. That's what kindness is. I mean, all that's, you have to do to see that is go to YouTube and anybody listening should go to mm -hmm. YouTube and remind themselves of this with Joe Biden and watch when Barack Obama surprises Joe Biden with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And you yeah. see the genuineness of this guy as a human being. And it's and that's the thing. It is there, and this is, and I I I'm, I want to be extremely careful with my words because I never want to sound like an apologist for people being a, pro a product of their time. Agreed. I was not so, trying to do that either. Which yeah, I was and there I think, about it. clarifying that. And I'm sure I'll handle some of you on Facebook about that later this week too. Yeah, but you know the thing is, Joe Biden. You know, when he came into, uh, so when Joe Biden goes to Washington. You think about what the political leadership is on the train. Yeah, he, he, he did not have the choice of um, Senator Byrd being in an influential position, right? He did not have the choice of what sort of political leadership within his party he was going to encounter. And he acknowledged what he learned from them. I think one of the things that he really could have done but didn't do was to say, I was always diametrically opposed to where they stood on matters of race. But he does have his own history with uh, Southern uh, Democratic Dixocrats. 
he does have his own history with not fighting as aggressively for racial justice when he had the opportunity to early in his career. And that's something where, you know, Cory Booker is particularly passionate. And among the Democrats, I think what we're going to have are people that speak to different factors that make up the variable of what the ideal Democratic presidential candidate should be. And before it comes together, I think it's going to splinter apart. I think Harris has got a base of support that she's going to be able to relate to. I think that Cory Booker is going to have a base of support that he's going to be able to uh, find relatable. I think that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and basically all the other angels and saints that make up the Democratic Party are all going to have their segment that are passionately devoted to them. The question is, is it going to be too much division to overcome to put one thing together in the end? You know, can you just can you take all these distinct puzzle pieces and put them back together and say, you know what, we're going to take the best attributes of these candidates and we're going to develop a plank on a, a planks on a party platform on these topics. And this is the one person who we think represents all of these issues most effectively. And I think that's where the Democrats are concerned right now. Or I would be if I were consulting. As I should be. Yeah, yeah I mean, your metaphor person. is perfect. Have you ever tried to put a puzzle together where you're using pieces from 20 different puzzles? No, you're talking to a guy who's, who learned he was colorblind by not being able to put together a puzzle. So, yeah, puzzles and I have a long history, but um, <laughs> but I do I do like the – I use puzzles as an example a lot, that each one of those pieces, when you pull it out, you can say, it's beautiful. Look at this. Oh, this is another great piece. Let's put them together and make something wonderful. But – is it going to be, when you put it together, it, it should be the party, but it should also be the candidate. Yep. And I think it's easier to make it the party platform than it is to make it the candidates. When I look at each one of the Democratic candidates, and I like a lot of things about every one of them, I really do. Um, but I think, who's the one that could best represent uh, and be the tongue and groove construction that holds these planks together? That's the challenge, and that's where the big picture vision of a Joe Biden, or even an Elizabeth Warren. Even Elizabeth Warren, I think, has a big picture approach. Um, but I think that, you know, Trump's already, he's thrown out barbs from day one. I mean, he knew that as soon as, you know, rule number one of, of politics is one election, rule number two is one re-election. He knew immediately that Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden yep, are going to be out there on a horizon, you know, waiting for 2020. And, you know, he's on almost a daily basis. He has repeated a mantra that his voters now repeat. And what the Democrats are going to have to look at is not this issue of let's make America great. He's already laying the foundation very aggressively that he already succeeded at making America great again. Let's keep it that way. Yep. You can't beat it. So I think we're both in agreement for the most part that nothing's going to come from Hope Hicks, but some difference on whether this is important to continue or not. Yeah, I, I think that with Hope Hicks, we, we all kind of, you know, not, not to... I forgot about Hope Hicks, to be honest. I do, too. And, you know, I, I think that we all were, <coughs> excuse me, somewhat hopeful, no pun intended, that she was going to <laughs> shed some light onto what it was like to be in a White House. But to basically so defiantly say, no, do you want to figure out what my office is? That'll be disclosed sometime by somebody else, but it ain't going to come from me. I think that it it also was sort of a throwing down of the gauntlet that while other people never appeared to testify, she did, and she gave nothing, 
and she got away with it. And we all, whether we like it or not, have got to move on from that this moment forward. Yep. Let's switch gears and uh, talk about another case that the president has been intimately linked to, and that is the Eddie Gallagher trial that's getting underway. Um, yeah. With Gallagher, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, Eddie Gallagher served in the U.S. military, um, charged for his actions on his last tour um, that involved the battle for Mosul. Um, and with Gallagher, the big threat that was all the big the big argument here, the big um, piece being used against him was they had a captured young Islamic State fighter who was being treated by a medic. Gallagher allegedly came over the radio and said he's mine, walked up and started stabbing him with a hunting knife, um, ultimately killing him. Uh, now, I will say it, it did surprise me that earlier this week now we have um, a major change in this case. Gallagher had asked for, and a lot of Americans have been pushing for President Trump to go ahead and pardon him beforehand, arguing that he was serving the military role and this was military based, not something worthy of a crime. But then the trial gets going, and all of a sudden we have um, a big change, and we have a medic that was deployed with Gallagher now saying that he put his thumb over the guy's trach tube and asphyxiated him, and Gallagher didn't do anything. So we now have some, some signs of reasonable doubt. So, Brian, I'm curious in general about your thoughts on whether this is something that you've ever seen a trial to begin with, whether this is something we need to be uh, thinking about with future military actions. And then to some degree, even though it's a quick turnaround, whether we think that this medic actually did this or whether we think we're just looking for plausible doubt to end it once and for all. I do think it merit, that it merits a trial. And also, you know, we have to bear in mind the context of this, that the, the military tribunals are different than our conventional tribunals. We don't have, in this particular case, for example, we don't have a jury of 11 people. We have, um, gosh, what is it, five total? I think it's like five Marines and two sailors that, that comprise the jury. I think that any time that there are substantial, even if it's at just the face level, uh, surface level, um, image of impropriety, I do think it's appropriate to have an investigation and to have an inquiry. So I don't think that it's something that should never have seen a light of day. I think that the portrayal is very interesting, that it ranges from one extreme, which is that he's a, you know, he's a madman who boasted about how he used his own hunting knife to kill a person and posed for a picture with the knife in one hand and hair in the other and, and raising a lot of imagery with that to at the other extreme, him basically saying his uh, subordinates are being insubordinate, right? It's like mutiny on a bounty, and these are people who never liked him, and they want to uh, destroy his career and his life along the way. Uh, what is the truth, and where does the truth lie? Anywhere in between, uh, potentially. I do think that the medic is an important contribution to the story, because in cases like this, you know, where we, we tend to... Um, when we talk about U.S. service persons and we talk about ISIS, for example, it's very easy to become sub, um, subjected to the rally around a flag phenomenon, right? People get behind the troops and they get behind leadership and they say it's not for them and things happen in wartime. I find that to be a very poor argument, but I think a lot of the – a big cross-section of the American population is supportive of that, right? The American military live under different types of stressful conditions and Sometimes they shoot civilians. That's collateral damage, and it's unfortunate and it's bad. But they're out there on the front lines, and you're not, and you don't know what it's like. So we hear a lot of these popular defenses. But at another level, well, what's really important for our system is that when you have allegations that somebody indiscriminately fired, when you have allegations 
that he harmed and killed defenseless people, that he fired upon civilians, that he literally murdered somebody and bragged about it with his own weapon. Those are the kinds of things that need to be investigated and need to be made part of our public awareness. Um, I think proving those charges, because when I read the prosecution or read the defense materials that are publicly available, uh, it's not like there's a wealth of material evidence. There's not blood evidence, there's not DNA, there's not all the kinds of things that people put together in a traditional criminal prosecution to say, these are the reasons why we believe you committed these crimes. It's not hearsay, conjecture, boasting, or an interpretation of a video or a picture, right? There's hard evidence that links you. There does not yet appear to be in a public domain any evidence of this hard evidence. So then it comes down to his argument versus other arguments. The medic's role in this is unique because it's somebody who is admitting to being part of a pattern of behavior that's associated with the trial against them. Yeah, and again, I think you're right. We don't have the hard evidence, but being completely transparent, I think Eddie Gallagher was operating as a complete scumbag during this last tour. I don't think he is a complete scumbag. I think that's what continual service in a war zone does to some people. But the fact that he took a picture with the body, I mean, we've learned nothing um, in terms of what we do and don't do. Some of the reports of him coming back and saying things like, I know you're not all right with what happened, but it's just an ISIS dirt bag. I'll do this next time where nobody has to see it. Um, this is a guy that was clearly not operating within all of his function. Um, no, I think and- you're right. And I think that there's a, there's a segment of the electorate that would be out there cheering that right now. And, you know, they would be under that segment of the electorate that's loyal to the president who would be thinking, this is what a long-term, lifelong war on terror looks like. However, you know, if you interview people who have served in the military throughout our history, that's not a shared consensus that, you know, times are bad, times are different. People do things uh, and behave in a way that's very different, so a product of that particular environment. There are a number of people that will say, I had that moment where I still had a choice to make about whether I pull the trigger or whether I don't, and I didn't, or whether I, whether I stabbed somebody or I didn't, and I didn't, or whether I boast about what I did, um, because now I know it's a very idiosyncratic observation that I'm about to make. But most of the people with whom I've had conversation who have served in the military in very close fighting quarters don't talk about or boast about the things that they've done. Um, it's a part of their life. It's a part of something that they will carry with them for the rest of their life. But I think that his behavior put it out there in a way that made people, it almost begged the kind of intrusion into his privacy that I think is merited. If you go out there and boast about what you're doing and who you're doing it to, it makes people wonder about your um, your mental well-being and also your compliance with the law. And this will be an opportunity to see if you know, how it will ultimately be portrayed is whether uh, the military is in fact different and whether they're above the law or whether they're not. Yeah, and again, I mean, I think you're right. The two things you've raised that I think are really interesting, especially from a listener perspective. Number one, if this was a jury trial, he would never be convicted. We just need to be honest and start that from scratch. There would be somebody that would be the trial. They wouldn't have been able to hire Yeah, but even if they would have, I mean, this would have been the equivalent. I mean, this is the, the police versus victim to an extreme because you're talking American soldiers. Um, so there's that part. But then your point about a continual war on terror, if you want a war on terror to stop, people like Eddie Gallagher need to quit being accused of this stuff, because all that does is feed into terrorist propaganda. 
everything they tell their citizens and folks around them about Americans and the American military, we're now showing in real life potential. Uh, the other side just of the fact that there could be that perception is problem. Right. And the other side of the will is uh, people like Gallagher need to stop behaving like people like Gallagher in situations yeah. like this. If if he did these terrible if things. If he did. If he did. Wow. If, if he did these terrible things, then wow. Yeah, you know, lock him up, throw away the key, whatever. Even if he didn't do these terrible things, he's not exactly a model citizen by being boastful about his portrayal of a category of people that is simply different from us, right? And it's not just whether they're terrorists, whether they're not, or whether they're ISIS or something else. It's about the feeding into the American consciousness about these we-they dichotomies, that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. Well, who exactly are they? Oh, those people who are far, far away and look like this. I think his behavior was reprehensible. Um, whether he committed these acts or not, his verbal behavior um, is reprehensible. Not necessarily criminal, simply reprehensible. Yeah, and I mean, I'll fall back on, I do think there's something that needs to be looked at here from a, what have we done to help people like Gallagher not get to that mental state as well? Um, There's a responsibility here, even if he did this, where I can say that being there as often as he was, I bet Tour 1 was a lot different from his life. and as we think about international conflict, I think the last thing we really need to make sure we cover this week is obviously the the evolving situation with Iran. Um, we go from last week where we have the president and the U.S. government very upset about uh, potential Iranian influences and actions related to the, the cargo tankers. And then this week we have the Iranian government saying they have shot down and clear, showing clear evidence they have shot down uh, an American security surveillance drone. Um, that they are arguing had flown into their territorial waters. The U.S. maintains that it did not go into territorial waters. But we have President Trump, who I assumed was just going to push the red button and end Iran forever over a $100 million drone, uh, instead coming back and saying, this had to be an accident. They couldn't have meant to possibly do this, even though their defense minister is clearly out there saying, we watched it, it hit our waters, we blew it up, and we have evidence that we did it. Where do you fall, and what do you think about Trump's? It's not a flip flop, but it's definitely a switch in tone from last week to this week. Oh yeah, I think that um, you know, as, as I was going through the material, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, so much is happening in, in real time right now, right? So I started to pull together some of the disparate sources, and you have Trump's initial response. So first is the tanker bombings, and then you have the drone report, and then the, the first line was something like, "It was a foolish move." Then you have Nancy Pelosi weighing in saying, it's a dangerous situation. And then we have the, um, gosh, I'm trying to find, uh, I had somewhere, here it is, the uh, General Hassan Salami, the commander of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, basically saying, so Trump is saying it's a foolish move, Pelosi is saying it's a dangerous situation. Oh, and by the way, Putin already weighed in, saying, using the word catastrophic if the U.S. were to intervene. We also have uh, Salami saying, shooting down the American spy drone had a clear, decisive, firm, and accurate message. The message is that the guardians of the borders of the Islamic Iran will decisively respond to the violation of any stranger to the state. Yep. The only solution for uh, the enemies is to respect the territorial integrity and national interests of Iran, which I think right now makes everybody wonder what the hell is going on uh, and why would Iran be behaving this way? And when we take a step back, you know, even through a very, a very short history, let's look, Iran's economy is crumbling. 
Iran has restrictions on the exportation of its own oil. It finds itself in a position effectively of saying, if we can't export our own oil, you can't either. And the question is, is Iran right now acting desperately? Are they in a position of saying, hey, we've got nothing or little to lose, and we're in fact willing to call Trump's bluff? So this goes back to your initial observation, uh, Will, about Trump saying, well, you know, it may not have been, you know, Iran-sponsored action. Are they calling Trump's tough rhetoric? Because on one hand, here's a person who talked about basically laying down, you know, carpet bombing our enemies. Um, and here we have clear evidence uh, that the United States uh, is, is, is generally convinced, our, mil- our intelligence community is convinced that um, this was perpetrated by Iran. Iran basically has, you know, generated evidence as, as it is as well. Um, you have the, the registries of the vessels uh, Norway and Japan saying it appears to be the case. You have Great Britain saying it appears to be the case. And then you have Trump saying, but it might not have been. It could have been a very foolish move by a bad general who didn't know what he was doing. Push the wrong he made button. a terrible mistake. It's almost like I really don't want to have to deal with the reality that they intentionally blew one of our aircraft out of the sky. Our $200 million prototype. Yeah. And he did go on and on about how, you know, it was, it was awesome that it wasn't manned by human beings. If it was, you know, that, that would be different and that would be catastrophic and that would change things. But then you're also thinking, dude, you're talking about a drone, kind of by definition, they don't have a person sitting inside of them. Um, kind of beside the point. However, right now what we have is very clear evidence, or all the evidence seems to be pointing to the fact that Iran did in preservation of its... Uh, of its territorial integrity, blow something out of the sky. Likewise, if we saw something flying over our airspace, we'd blow it out of the sky. We blow crap up all the time. Yep. And so now the question is, what are we going to do about it? Hopefully nothing. Well, because it gets scary out there. Because if we we go to the other side of the not hopefully nothing, we're dealing with a potential enemy that um, is... It would not be the kind of case where we would go in and a weekend later we come back out and say mission accomplished, right? It's something that ends up integrating other allies on either side into an equation of a much more messy calculus. So the question is, what do you do? That's because there's no end game. There's there's nothing to win. There's no end to this. I mean, what's the best thing that happened? We overthrow the Iranian regime. Who replaces them after a period of instability? An even more anti-American Iranian regime. Yeah, uh, it's well, yeah, should read in, inside the Iranian Revolution. I mean, yeah, we we've seen what's happened when our national uh, goal was to basically destabilize a political system, dismantle it, and put it where we like. You know, whether we look south or whether we look um, far into the east, we find out that doesn't really work out very well, right? Nope. And whatever, whatever we good. We're not very good at these short-term uh, military excursions as well. I mean, there have been moments, obviously, you know, where our military might was clear, decisive, and, and victorious. Well, yes, and we fight but, countries that have sticks and stones to throw at us. Yeah, and now the question is, like you said, without without a clear definition of what are you fighting for, and how do you you can't define what done looks like. No, and, I mean, from an ally perspective, I mean, who are we going to drag with us on this one? We'll drag Boris in the UK, I'm sure. The UAE might help us out. Israel will be there. Outside of that, I don't see anybody jumping on board for a quote-unquote missionless mission. And again, I'm not saying that Iran is doing things well. I'm not saying that they're 
shouldn't be thoughts of leadership change within the country. But the idea that this is one that we can go in and say, we're going to bring change, we don't know what that change looks like. And from Trump's perspective, I think my fear for him has to be, is he going to become the dog that catches the car finally? and realizes, oh crap, I've been chasing this car, wanting to chase this car, and the car just hit its brakes, and now I have to figure out what I'm going to do when I get this time. Well, I think I think his response is that, that singular line, it may not have been intentional. So here he is chasing the car, the car slams on a brake, he's coming at a full speed ahead, his mouth is wide open, he's ready to chomp down on a bumper, but then he's realizing it's more than he can consume. And so what he's going to do is back up and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't intentional. Or maybe what you did was not unreasonable. Because, you know, if whether it was over international waters, you know, obviously things are, you know, are, are, are a little bit different when we talk about um, non-territorial spaces, land, sea, air, and space, and things like this. But when we do have uh, patrolling vessels and drones, for example, what nation state wouldn't at least consider seeing something that shouldn't be approaching them, approaching them, or in their space, being in their space. And I don't I don't know definitively where it was in terms of international airspace versus close enough that. to be debated. Exactly. And under the under that set of circumstances, if it were to be flipped around and say, what would we do under those circumstances if an Iranian drone was in international airspace but approaching our airspace? We know would what we, we do. Yes, would we sit back and say, oh, cute, you know, everybody's got drones now. I bet it's just taking pictures. Probably not. <laughs> it's a realtor. And, and, Come yes, on. And, and in which so case, we're going to put the straight up on Zillow. Right. And so, you know, what I think is Iran is in the position of really having, you know, oddly, they don't have anything to gain by this, but they also have nothing to lose by this. And, you know, is it simply a regime that's acting out because its economy is crumbling and because it, you know, doesn't want other other states to be able to export oil when it cannot export oil as it chooses. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, the motivation is what's interesting. Will is you know why if if all of these if these three events were were truly Iran government sanctioned events, what's what's their end game? What is what is what is their motivation? What is their motive? Relevancy. I think it's relevancy. We're not talking about them enough anymore. So Iran as a nation state would say in order to become relevant, you want to do something that's... Let's drop an American drone. Let's drop an American drone. We'll be all over Donald Trump's lips. He just announced his re-election. We can become the focal point. And again, I think Trump plays into this in a good way. And not a good way, but in a, in a way that works for him in the sense of here's our flashy little subject to get everybody to focus on for the week. And then next week, I'll try to change something else. And that's where I was making with the car metaphor. Of what happens when that group that you make the shiny object to distract says, okay, let's go. You want to do this? Let's go. And I think that's, you know, to some extent, Iran saying, you're going to keep using us as a puppet. Every once in a while, the puppet's going to swing back. It is. And that's, that's the position that we find ourselves in right now is that, um, are we curious about what's happening? And do we want to use drones to gather information and intelligence? Well, of course we do. And do we have, so not only do we shoot things out of the sky, do we also have some of our own stuff blown out of the water and blown out of the sky? Of course we do. Um, but this is a very public demonstration of that at a very unique moment in time, right? And so consequently, what is what is our response? And I, I think for Trump, I don't think this is keeping him up at night, but at some level it should. And is the it may not have been intentional, his way of 
you know, creating a red heron to look at, but at the same time, giving him a pass if he chooses to do nothing. Yep. And he's got both sides to deal with. He also has hawks in, um, in Congress who are thinking we need to be, we need to behave clearly and decisively on this matter. So there are some wedges that exist uh, on a congressional side of D.C. However, I, I don't think this is a – right now it doesn't appear to be materializing as a significantly long-term um, investment of the president's energy. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Listener supports what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. Subscribing to the show can help us out as does sharing episodes through your podcast app. Word of mouth is the best advertising we get, so feel free to tell your friends, your family, or also leave reviews and ratings on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, corrections, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. You can go to our Facebook page where we spend time with listeners throughout the week, bantering back and forth at facebook.com forward slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. Don't forget what I mentioned earlier about for Patreon, uh, that you can see the more in-depth discussion between Jay and Mike related to healthcare, or the interview I have with Hillary Allen from um, Up to Us. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show is produced by Will Miller. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday, and we hope you can join us then. Thanks.